First Peter. Today we'll be in chapter one, verses seventeen through twenty-one. Next week we'll look at the the, uh, the rest of the chapter, verses twenty-two through twenty-five. Uh, this passage, uh, this message from that passage, I've titled "A Properly Fill Feared Life." A properly fear-filled life. So we can read it together. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Well, there's one commandment in this section that we're looking at today, and it is to conduct yourself with fear. Conduct yourself with fear. Uh, that's easy for us as humans. <laughs> we conduct ourselves in fear a lot. Uh, some of us like to court fear a little bit. There are some daredevils out there in the world who enjoy jumping off of tall things uh, or, or driving recklessly, perhaps. Uh, there are other things that are, are less chosen fears, but maybe still motivate us just as much. Some of the most common fears among people are, of course, snakes, spiders, flying, heights, and, of course, the ever-present social fears such as public speaking. In the Bible, we see some really common to-man fears. Uh, for example, when angels appear to mankind in the Scriptures, the recipient of this visit pretty much inevitably falls to the ground, often described as if dead, in the fear that they experience at the appearance of the celestial being. And pretty much the first thing out of the mouth of most angels in Scripture is, fear not, or often more accurately translated, stop being afraid. It's a natural thing. Uh, we have an English word for it that we use that's stolen straight from the Greek, phobias. We have phobias, and phobos, fear, is from the, from the Greek, and that's exactly the commandment here, is that we are to live a life of phobos, fear. That's an odd thing to be commanded as a believer, isn't it? We're frequently told that we should be free from fear, and as we see in this passage, it's true, there are things that we should be free of the fear of, but the one thing that we must not ever lose our fear of is the fear of the Lord. And so Peter gives us in this little passage three reasons that we should conduct ourselves with fear in this life. First, he tells us that we should conduct ourselves with fear because of the judge. Second, that we should conduct ourselves with fear because of the price paid for our salvation. And thirdly, we should conduct ourselves with fear because of the perfect plan of God. So in verse 17, we see that we should fear 
We should live our lives in fear, that we should conduct ourselves with fear because of the judge. He says, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. The degree that we have of fear when we encounter things of which we are fearful naturally varies. If you have a fear of heights, you may be afraid to step onto a step stool, but you will be deathly afraid to step to the edge of a large cliff or walk across a tall bridge. Certainly, hang gliding or parachuting would be right out of the question. If you're afraid of snakes, a garter snake may scare you so that you scream and run, but that's not nearly the degree of fear that you'd feel if you found a cobra in your kitchen. A lot of children have fears of dogs, but a small, cuddly dog, though it may inspire some degree of fear, is nothing like running into Collius, for example. (laughs) And so it's natural for us to understand that, that the fear that we experience is scaled, Scaled by the thing that is causing us to fear. And in this case, we have a little context. Peter is helpful in that. If you just look up to verse 14 through 16, we have the context that Peter is giving us about why it is that we should conduct ourselves with fear. Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Our judge is the perfectly holy God. And the standard by which he judges us is the perfect holy standard of God. We have much to fear. So what is it to conduct yourselves in the, in this kind of fear though, as opposed to the, the fear of running from a snake or a dog or refusing to walk across a bridge? Well, this is a particular kind of fear and this is really the only fear that is truly appropriate for the believer in this life and this is the fear of the Lord. So what is the fear of the Lord? Well, in the Old Testament, it's talked about a lot. Four times we see repeated in the book of Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's echoed in the Psalms. Job repeats it. All three of the major books of of wisdom literature in the Old Testament tell us this over and over. But that's not the only thing the fear of the Lord is or does. These wisdom authors tell us that the fear of the Lord prolongs life. It is the fountain of life. It leads to life. It is a refuge. It is a confidence. It is a treasure and a blessing. Proverbs 8.13 tells us, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in an evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. And in Exodus 20.20, Moses says, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. So what is this thing that we call the fear of the Lord? Well, it's it's not as simple to, to define as one or two words, but when we put these things together, we see this that it is the, the hatred 
and the opposition to things that the Lord hates and is opposed to. The fear of the Lord is lining up under God and and putting our affections in order with his affections. What he loves, we love. What he hates, we hate. And then we act accordingly. The fear of the Lord is a major theme in the Old Testament as we see men of the faith live out lives where they are tested in their fear of the Lord. Do they truly fear the Lord or do they fear something else? Do they fear men? Moses, when he was a young man, attempted to flee, to, to free the Israelites his own way. He took up arms and killed uh, an Egyptian overseer over the Israelite slaves and as a result fled for his life across the desert. His fear of man was greater than his fear of God. But later he returns, bearing God's words and demanding Pharaoh release his people. We see David early in his young life exhibiting the fear of the Lord as he comes to the battlefield and sees God's army cowering before Goliath and says, I'm going to go fight Goliath. I'm going to do it because I come in the name of the Lord and I don't need that armor. The Lord is my strength, my armor. But later, we see David fleeing from his enemies and failing the test of the fear of the Lord over the fear of man. We see the Apostle Peter in the New Testament as he's confronted by a lowly slave girl denying his association with Jesus Christ. But on the day of Pentecost, getting up and boldly proclaiming the risen Jesus without fear for his own safety. Elijah went to the mountaintop with great certainty of the power of God to overcome the prophets of Baal. But as soon as the king and the queen sought his death, he fled to the wilderness. Men and women of faith are tested by God. And the fear of the Lord is a large part of that testing. Do we live up to what we are called to in living fearfully before our God? It's right to fear God. It is good to fear God. We're told not just in the Old Testament where people may say, well, that's just how Israel interacted with God under the, the, old, the old covenant, but in the new covenant as well. Jesus says in Luke 12.4, Now I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have nothing more than they can do. But I say, fear the one who can cast you body and soul into hell, right? There's there's a, an appropriate fear of God. Even this God of the New Testament. In, in John chapter 5, we see Jesus Christ say, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus, our, our Savior, Jesus, the Lamb of God, is also the judge of the world. And we must fear him. We must reverence him. We must stand in awe of this God who is perfectly righteous and holy and demands that of us. 
And we see here that it's not a free pass for those who have Jesus. This passage isn't a warning to the world to fear God. Because he starts with the very first thing, if you address as Father. This is spoken to the household of God. This is spoken to you and to me, brothers and sisters. If you appeal to the Father, and it really means here, if you appeal to the Father by the title of Father, if you truly believe that God is your Father, then this is the commandment for you, that you would live in fear of Him. In the Old Testament, God says to His people in Malachi chapter 1, if I be a father, where is my honor? And we see that Peter highlights for us that that God in this judgment is not a respecter of persons. And this echoes for us back to to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 10, where he says, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Peter's doctrine hasn't changed from those days. Certainly, we as people understand this, uh, Psychologists spend a lot of time, uh, if you go see a psychologist about childhood issues, talking to you about your relationship with your mother and father, the the right relationship with a parent, and particularly with a father seeking uh, a judgment that is good from your father is is a very important part of being a child. You want the approval of your father. You want your father to look at you, to look at you and say, "Good job." You want him to say, "I'm proud of you." Well, here it is. This is what we are commanded to as well in our relationship with our heavenly Father. We we live in fear of the displeasure of our God, that that He would be displeased with us should motivate us to live a holy life to live in fear of the Lord. Paul tells us that believers also come under the judgment of God. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, to be clear, this judgment seat, that he's talking about is not the judgment seat of deciding who goes to heaven and who doesn't go to heaven. But but our deeds as God's followers will be unpacked, laid bare, exposed on the day of judgment. What we did out of a pure love of God and for God's people will be on display. And what we failed to do when we lived in fear of man, when we sought our own pleasures, those things too will be on display and we will have shame for the things that we did that were not in accordance with the fear of the Lord. Now I want to be clear with you that in our culture today we talk a lot about sin as a sickness. We, we hear about it a lot that that we have a, an illness, a cancer within us that that is causing us to be separated from God. And what we need is a cure. 
What we need is a cure from that sickness. And while there are allusions in Scripture to that sort of talk about sin, it can be used deceptively. Sin is an evil choice. It is a rebellion against God who is sovereign over all things. And it is worthy of judgment. We don't judge people for sickness, or at least we shouldn't. Perhaps in the last two years, many have been judged because of sickness. But we don't blame people because they've fallen ill. We don't pass judgment on people because of, uh, because of something for which they need a cure. But God judges sin. It's not something we need healing from. It's something that we need forgiveness for. We can't make our sins small. Our sins are grievous and are terrible and should cause us to live in fear of the Lord. And in that light, Peter goes on, because our fear should be measured by the high and holy nature of the judge, but also our fear of the Lord should be based in the price that was paid for us in verse 18 and 19. Peter goes on, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. We're used to measuring the value of things by the subjective value we give to them. If you go down to the mall and walk around, there are a lot of things there that are calling out to you as a consumer of goods because you recognize the name, the name brand on them. Sports cars don't get you from point A to point B any better than a Honda Civic does. But they sure do look nice. And maybe drive fast. A designer handbag doesn't hold your stuff any better than a Target handbag does. Luxury watches don't tell the time any more accurately than a moderately priced Casio. There are other things, though, beyond consumer goods that we value this way. Uh, in our culture, we celebrate some things where we attribute value to what we have based on the price that was paid for it. On the 4th of July, on Memorial Day, on Veterans Day, we remember those who have made sacrifices for the freedoms that we have as a culture. And certainly, I would never take away from the fact that those sacrifices have a value of their own. But the freedoms that we have in our country have a value that is not premised only on what has been sacrificed for them, but on the value of the thing itself. When we talk about the blood of Christ, we we don't give it value by our estimation of its worth. It is of eternal and infinite value because of what it is. 
Peter starts by by actually contrasting it. Before he gets into its actual value, he he gives you the lesser thing first. He he says you've been redeemed not with corruptible things like silver and gold. I mean silver and gold are 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 pretty valuable. A lot of people today think that they're a lot more valuable in the long run than stocks are, the way that things go up and down. A lot of people put their faith and their trust in gold or the things that gold can buy, but all those things are passing away. Rust and moth will come and consume. But it's not just gold and silver that we put our trust in wrongly. Those are not the only things that we trust in for our salvation apart from the blood of Christ. We trust in our lineage, our parentage, our position in culture, our relative goodness to other people, our record of perfect attendance at Sunday school or church worship service or baptism or number of prayers said or or who's praying for you. Those are all good things, but every single one of them is corruptible. Every single one of them is imperfect. Not one of those things is of the value required for salvation. And so if your hope is in those things, if that is the cost of your redemption, then you have a lot more to be afraid of. Because it's the precious blood of Christ that satisfies that judgment that is rendered by the perfect and holy judge. Jesus' blood is ultimately perfectly precious because it is precious in the sight of God the Father. Peter describes it here as spotless. It's perfect, pure, through and through. No taint. No shadow. No lack of integrity in it. It's, it's actually gone on there. It's unblemished and spotless. So not only is it pure in its own nature, but nothing that it has encountered causes any diminution in its value or its perfection. We don't stand as created, as the created beings in judgment of the blood of Christ. It stands in judgment of us. We're the broken. We're the, the faulty. We're the blemished. We're the spotted. And it is not. Our failure to recognize the blood of Christ for what it is, is on us. We know its value, not merely because we're told it, but because we also know its effect. This blood of Christ that we are purchased with is is perfectly acceptable to God as the ransom for many. If you just flip back to 1 Peter 1.4, 
we see Peter saying that we have obtained an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Why is it that our inheritance is imperishable and undefiled? Undefiled, spotless, perfect, without blemish? Because it was purchased for us by the perfect blood of Christ. This this blood has bought us life eternal. Paul echoes this when he says in Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh, brought close by the blood of Christ. This blood of Christ draws us to God. It makes it possible for that utter and impenetrable separation between a perfect God and fallen man to be breached because of its effectiveness, its effectual nature. Paul also says in in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. And and in chapter 7, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. This, This blood was a very high price to be paid for us. Thankfully, Paul or Peter goes on in, in this chapter to tell us what it is that we were redeemed from. We were redeemed from empty religion. Empty religion. All of us, at some point in our lives, were on a blind and ignorant path to hell. Seemed pretty good to us a lot of days. Seemed pretty good. Some of us had a whole system built up where we knew that we weren't going to hell. We thought we knew where we were going. Thought we had a a roadmap on how to get there. But ultimately, vanity and foolishness. Peter tells us that that we we were redeemed from this utterly futile way of life. When he says way of life there, it it's that same idea as the conduct that he's told us that we are to, to have in, in our commandment. That we're conduct, to conduct ourselves. To conduct ourselves with fear. This way of life is our conduct. So this isn't just an intellectual exercise that we were engaged in or some sort of a spiritual journey. This is the way we live our life. This is our whole way of living. It encompasses all the aspects of our lives. Our whole conduct. The way we function inside, as well as the way we, we function in community and in society. It, it addresses all of the isms that you might run into. Certainly, today we are awash in materialism, secularism, and atheism all of which are foolish and futile. Really, by their own admission, they lead nowhere. And it takes the redemption bought by the blood of Christ to bring us out of that way of life. But it's not just these foolish and empty things 
that are patently foolish and empty, but even things that are incomplete. When, when Peter talks about this, he's writing primarily to Jewish Christian believers. And so when he says there that they were redeemed from the feudal way of life inherited from their forefathers, He's talking about the vain religious structure that has been built up around the true religion of Judaism. Jesus was frequently confronted by the Jews, arguing with him that they are sons of Abraham. They have nothing to fear from God. God has blessed them. They feared Abraham instead of fearing God. They claimed Abraham instead of claiming God. And Jesus said to them that he could raise up stone, raise up children of Abraham from the stones of the ground. And it would do as much good. These are harsh words here for, for Peter to speak to a primarily Jewish audience. That all the things, all these traditions, all these goods that came down to them from their forefathers, when it comes to Fearing the Lord were worthless. And in fact, worse than useless were a distraction, a side trail away, away from the God, not toward Him. This also helps us here to understand what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter one, when he talks about the fact that God has let men go their own way. It's not that God pushes us down a path toward futility and uselessness. That's the direction we want to go. And we head that way on our own. We don't need any help heading away from God. What it takes is for God to reach out and grab us and bring us back to Him. In that way, we are redeemed, not just from the wrath of God that falls upon our sin, but but we are redeemed from our foolish, useless pursuit of things of this life that mean nothing. It took the death of Christ to reconcile us to God. This perfect, spotless, blemish-free blood of the Lamb of God to turn us back from our foolish, headlong rush to hell. And because of that great price, as Paul told us and here as Peter is telling us, we must live for Christ. We've been redeemed from futility. Stop acting futilely. And then thirdly, we must conduct ourselves with fear because of the perfect plan. This is in verses 20 and 21 where Peter says, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. There's a lot of uh, feel-good Christianism out there in the world. Uh, if you go on Etsy, you can find all kinds of nice little things that will affirm you in whatever walk of life you wish using Christianese to do it. 
There are a lot of people out there who will, with every good intention, tell you that God has a perfect plan for your life. And by that they mean, if you'll just stay in the will of God, as they mean it, then you too can be happy and healthy and prosperous and live long. And God will bless you. Well, God does have a perfect plan for your life. The problem is that it doesn't look like that. At least not for many of us. God's perfect plan for our life is modeled after God's perfect plan for Jesus' life. And so Peter here tells us that we should have hope we should fear because God has a perfect plan for us, but, but this, this perfect plan not only inspires fear, but hope in us. Christ was foreknown, he tells us. This, again, will, will be there in a, in a couple of weeks when Mike comes back on the day of Pentecost when, when Peter declares to the people there that Jesus died by the foreknowledge of God. Foreknowledge of God. And, and again, Peter has already mentioned this idea in, in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 2. If you want to look back there, he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, these are, are those who reside, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This is the, the election of God, the choice of God, the, the, the choosing of God that has been accomplished beforehand. Christ was foreknown. He was pre-selected to be the one, the one and only, the Messiah, the Lamb of God. That he was chosen to come to live and die for us. Not only that, but the actions, activities, and words that Jesus would speak while he was on this planet were chosen ahead of time for him. We see through the gospel him saying, I must go here. I must do that. Sometimes those were things that were revealed in prophecy. Sometimes they were things that he was led to by the Holy Spirit. But his life was forechosen by God. From before the foundation of the world, God knew and chose that he would create man and man would fall. And that he would sit his son into this world to live and die for fallen man. That some would be saved and chosen out of the fallen race of Adam to be made holy, to be redeemed into the family of God and to live with him forever. As Christ was foreknown, we too are foreknown. In Romans 8, verse 28, Paul tells us, for those whom he foreknew, that those whom he foreknew are believers through all the ages. For those he, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren, And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. You want to know the perfect plan that God has for your life? There it is, brothers and sisters. 
There's the perfect plan of God for your life. Thankfully, we aren't left with just the bald statement by God in His Word that we should trust Him because He has a plan and and that we have forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Peter tells us that Christ also appeared for us. He appeared for us. This wasn't... This wasn't unnecessary by any means. Some people would argue that, right? That God could have snapped his fingers and made sin forgiven and gone away because that was inconsistent with what God had said and with God's character. But but here, Christ became manifest. He appeared. He became, uh, as as it could be translated from the Greek, he was rendered apparent. He was shown off to the world that the world might see him and know him. Not only that, but it, he was raised up and he appeared after his resurrection so that the world might see and know him in his resurrected state. That after he died on the cross, he did not stay dead, but rose and is a living Savior. He appeared for us that we might know and believe. Our Christ is not just a spiritual Christ, not just a physical Christ, but, but also a historical Christ. He lived for real in front of people who testified about him to others that we might hear and believe. And he did it not for his sake, but for our sake. He didn't need to prove to himself that he was resurrected. He came to show it to us. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16, By common confession, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was proclaimed among the nations, was believed in throughout the world, was taken up in glory. You want the the story of Christ in a nutshell? There it is. And it was done in the sight of people so that we might hear and believe. And when did it happen? That's important too. Here Peter tells us that it happened in uh, in the last days. These last times, verse 20. Last times is an important turn of phrase in the Bible. The last times we see in Hebrews chapter 1, in, in Jude chapter 1, in 1 John chapter 2. And it's talking about the church age. Yes, that is important that we're in the last days. It's, it's these days are the last days. <clears throat> but these days are an age where we have a pending judgment. We wait. The judgment of God is not here yet, but is coming. These are the last days before the mighty wrath of God is revealed on creation and on those who refuse to believe. Jesus said in John chapter 3, He who believes in Him, that's the Son, is not judged. 
He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. These last days are are the last days to avoid the coming judgment of wrath. And they're also the last days for us to live out our calling as faithful servants of the living God. Revelation is a book full of frightening incremental outpourings of the wrath of God on man who continually closes his eyes and still will not believe in the God who is slowly, bit by bit, dismantling everything around him. Jesus' mission when he came wasn't to bring himself glory. So this perfect plan of God cemented in the life of Christ wasn't about Jesus coming to bring himself glory. Our lives are not to bring ourselves glory. Jesus came to bring glory to the one who sent him. And the night before he was betrayed, in the upper room, in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed what's often called the great high priestly prayer. And in it, you see the sort of the inmost thoughts of Jesus in communication with his Father in his last hours on earth before the crucifixion. And he says these things variously through the passage. I'm not going to read the whole of John 17 to you. But in verse 3, he says, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Our our eternal life is premised entirely on the fact that we have seen and believed in the God who sent Jesus Christ by means of the one he sent, Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 6, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. This is what Jesus came to do for his disciples, to call them into relationship with the one who sent him into the world that they might, what? Obey. Live in fear of the Lord. To know Him. And then in verse 26, He says, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known to them in order that the love that you have for Me may be in them and I Myself may be in them. Jesus continues to make himself known to his disciples. In the night before the cross, in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the day that he's crucified, and the days following his resurrection, when he appears to them to teach them and show them the truth. On the cross, Jesus Christ completed his great sacrificial work. But as he stands in heaven today, he continues to do his high priestly work. He intercedes for us before the throne of God as our great high priest. He continues to sanctify us and purify us. In all this, we were not just saved from something, but we were saved to something. We were saved to a life and a hope. A life filled with good deeds. A hope that causes us to praise God 
and to thank Him for our salvation in Jesus Christ. Like Jesus Christ, we are to give glory to God. We live our lives in a way that is fear-filled, full of fear of the Lord. Thankfully, our our lives, this perfect plan of God for our lives is, is built upon, promised to us, and cemented by the relationship between God the Son and God the Father. Did you notice that in the high priestly prayer in, in John 17 as I was just reading those sections to you? That all of the things that we have in Christ, all of the things that we have in our salvation in God are because of the relationship between God the Son and God the Father. God the Father gives us to God the Son. God the Son brings us back to God the Father. God the Father made Himself known in Jesus Christ that we might know both God the Father and God the Son. He made known the love of God for God the Father, for God the Son. That as God the Father is in God the Son, and God the Son is in God the Father, God the Son may be in us and God the Father too. Peter will say in, in 2 Peter chapter 1 that we have in Christ a participation in the very Godhead. A marvelous mystery. And so because of this perfect plan that God had for God the Son, we know too that God has a perfect plan for us as He's laid it out. And so we can live our lives in holy fear of God, knowing that all the things that come into our lives are orchestrated by Him, that we might do the good deeds prepared for us ahead of time to do, that we might praise the Lord with our lips, that we might live out our lives, our days here on this earth in fear and trembling. So we we live out our lives, we conduct ourselves with fear, fear of the Lord, because of our great God who is our judge, perfect, high, and holy judge. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But God. We conduct ourselves with fear because of the great price paid for our salvation. A little later in 1 Peter, in in chapter 4, Peter says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Judgment is coming. We have to live in light of the fact that the salvation that we are bought with is a great price. And lastly, because of God's perfect plan, we conduct ourselves with fear. Paul talks about this in the book of Romans, where he compares the Jews to an olive tree where the unproductive branches are torn off and the wild olive branches are grafted in. But that comes with a warning that the wild olive branches were grafted in because they were productive. 
and an unproductive wild olive branch will be even more swiftly removed from the tree than the natural branch that had been taken off to make place for it. So, John 10.28, Those that the Father has given, who truly can by the Spirit call on the name of the Father as Father, will never be lost by the Son, and no one can snatch Him out of His hand. We have a great comfort, a great hope in the fact that even when we fail to live in in the fear of the Lord, even when we conduct ourselves in the fear of man or the fear of lack, fear of shame in this world, yet we have forgiveness because of that spotless blood of Christ. This morning on Sunday school, uh, actually timely, uh, John brought up Job 6.14, where Job says, For the despairing man there should be kindness from his friends so that he does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. So brothers and sisters, I commend you not only to the fear of the Lord for your own walk, but also to show this kindness to one another that you would point your brothers and sisters to the fear of the Lord. That they don't forsake it and walk their own way, but that we walk together giving glory to God, doing the good deeds of God, showing forth the great value of our salvation in Him. Let's pray together. Lord, there's uh, there's so much to fear in this life. So many things that we are are afraid of, from the fears of the moment to great and long-lasting fears. But Lord, we ask that you would help us that we might live in fear of you and you alone. That we would conduct ourselves in a way that would bring you glory. That would show our right relationship brought about by the gift and giving of your Son. That we've been brought into relationship with you by the salvation wrought in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we we pray that through that, we would earn from you that commendation of of well done, good and faithful servant on that day when we come to be with you. And we ask that we'd be helpers of one another to walk likewise, to not abandon the path of the fear of the Lord. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.